What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast the podcast where we talk to smart people but not necessarily done by smart people that is an awesome question this one goes down probably on one of my top five hey i like nutrition i like to eat food this is the coolest thing ever we're gonna do this forever i wish i paid more attention in that class you know i'm gonna be honest i don't understand that as a man i just i don't get it welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com Hello, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that hopefully satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. This week on the show, we get to talk about one of my greatest, deepest passions. The thing that I think if I had all the money in the world, I would be happy spending the rest of my days doing. And that is improving, working in, working on our food system. We're talking about things like sustainable farming. We're talking about how food, primarily animal products, get from kind of farm to plate and how that process, which is heavily rooted in the capitalistic ideal of efficiency, is actually extremely detrimental, not just to the health of our planet, but also to those that are producing our food in the first place tell you an interesting statistic. The average farmer today loses money. Imagine an industry so vital to our livelihood, yet it is unlikely you make a single dollar doing it. That is, of course, unless you are a massive conglomerate. Just as much in this episode, though, we're talking about the switch from what many may call the mainstream to a life on the farm. 
Our guest is John McConaughey. John has been immersed in sustainable agriculture for the past 15 years. He built and runs Double Brook Farm, which has pioneered a dynamic new approach to farming that is both financially sustainable, but at the same time is humane and ethical in its treatment of animals. It's energy sustainable, and it's a model for what the rest of farming can be. Now, also, I mentioned where John came from. He actually worked in finance for 20 years, and not just any finance. He worked for the Susquehanna International Group and Credit Suisse, where he, frankly, crushed it in finance, made bank, and then took that bank and invested it into a new way to grow our food. John is also a big part of the Decency Foundation, which if you recall, a previous guest of ours, Jeff Garson, is also a big part of. Jeff actually introduced me to John and said, trust me, you're going to hit it off. And boy, was he right. So at the start, we talk about career pathing, you know, going from finance to farming, making the hard choice between money and purpose. And really, I loved what John had to say. So I encourage you to listen to that part. But then the second half is all about what he's doing at Double Brook Farm and how it can revolutionize farming. So with that, I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, you can go to thedecencyfoundation.org or you can check out what John's doing on his farm at doublebrookfarm.com. Of course, if you enjoy these kind of conversations, we'd love to have you over at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast for a couple bucks. Support the show. Let us know you care. Let's get into it. We are talking to John McConaughey about things like moving from finance to farming and how to revolutionize our food industry. Enjoy. So I want to bring the listeners up to speed. And the way I view this episode going is I want to spend the first half really talking about your transition to Wall Street into things like sustainable farming and the food system and the restaurant you have. And then the second half, I want to talk about your, your experience in farming. Questions like, can anybody do it? Did you grow up on a farm or did you have to learn it along the way? What's it like to slaughter animals? All those things. So just setting yeah. that precedent, let's start here. What was your goal in getting started with finance? I went to um, private high school. Uh, and we, my family was not particularly wealthy. And so going to that private high school, uh, was sort of an eye opener to me that, um, the haves were something, you know, that they, that the, the kids that I was going to school with had more than I did. And that was something that motivated me to say, uh, I, I would like to achieve, uh, financial, uh, success in at least part of my life. And so that was the real driver to get into finance in the beginning. So early on, I sort of had this focus of uh, getting into uh, getting into Wall Street. Uh, interestingly, when you get into Wall Street, at least the part of Wall Street that I was in, uh, there is a discussion that happens on a fairly regular basis of what's your number, meaning at what point do you have enough wealth that you get out of the rat race? And so, it interestingly, there's a the, the, Almost the, the, the foundation of Wall Street is uh, a group of people hoping to achieve enough wealth so that they can get out of Wall Street. Uh, the irony is that most of them never get out, that the number uh, that they come up with in the beginning 
uh, is too low. And then once they reach that number, they, their salary has escalated to such an extent that it's, oh, I'll just do it one more year or one more year and one more year. And before you know it, they're 65 and uh, uh, still in finance. But there was some aspect of, of that when I got into to finance that I was looking to achieve uh, financial success so that I then could go on to do something that was more meaningful. Sure. Um, but I will say the thing that I, I loved all the time that I was in, in finance. And part of the reason is just the problem solving that went along with it. So the, the idea of making decisions on partial information and the reward of knowing whether you were right or wrong at the end of the day. And so it was, um, uh, I really enjoyed that part of, uh, of being in finance. The, the, the people side of it um, got a little tiresome after a while. And probably one of the big reasons why I decided to, to, to move on from, from the financial world. When you say the people side, because I'm really trying to hide my biases here because I, I could <laughs> I could give my opinion. I don't know if it's valid or not. Do you yeah. mean the working environment? Do you mean clients? Do you mean bosses? What do you mean by that? I'll get a little bit technical. The part of finance that I was in was proprietary trading. What proprietary trading means is that uh, I didn't deal with customers. We had a, uh, a mandate uh, to make money and for the bank that the banks that I worked for. So, um, and I only had two companies, there was only two companies that I worked for 10 years for one company, 10 years for another company. And, um, every day our objective was to come in and find out, find a way to make money for the bank. Um, and so we did not deal with the general public. And so when I say the people side, when you're talking about that environment where you are, uh, tasked with making money every day, uh, that there is the, the dark side of capitalism that, um, that people are out for themselves when you're in that environment. Obviously the, the compensation that goes along with that is based upon, uh, the success that you have. And therefore there's a real dark side of, of, you know, people taking advantage of any opportunity that they can, whether it hurts somebody else or doesn't hurt somebody else. Again, I had some assumptions around that, but this is where I really want to dig in. You and I had never met before, but knowing what you do now, knowing, having read articles about you and what you're doing, I, I can't imagine you're not a purpose-oriented person at your core. Yeah. Look, there's a lot of people say, yeah, my purpose was to make a lot of money so I could buy a lot of stuff, or my purpose is to make... Right. I, my guess is you have a strong bend towards wanting to make an impact on the world, on humans, on society. Was that noticeable or prevalent in your time at Wall Street or did that come later? Did you recognize later, ah, there's, you know, I'm growing and there's a part of me that might not achieve the purpose here that I want? Yeah, no, that was definitely part of it. So uh, at the end of the day, when you're uh, in finance, that there is nothing that you can touch at the end of the day. There's nothing that you can touch or feel or or say I built this and that, um, yeah, you can look at a bank account and say, oh, well, there's more money in it today than there was yesterday. That is a measuring stick for sure, but it's not tangible in a, in a way that, uh, that farming is right. So I, I think a lot of people get drawn to farming and I, and this was certainly part of it for me 
because at the end of the day, there is tangibility. Um, you know, whether it turned out to be a good day or a bad day or an animal uh, lost its life or, um, you know, something went uh, drastically wrong with the weather, there's still tangibility. And um, so to your other point about having a purpose, that that was, I, I'm very, very goal oriented. So one of my goals when I got into finance, there was this idea of when I hit a number, there was this idea of I want to do it for X amount of years. Um, and so that all sort of came together at the same time. I had been doing it for 20 years. I had exceeded the, the number that I had, uh, had readjusted and sort of put on paper. Uh, and I was experienced, experiencing this idea of I need something tangible. I need something fulfilling at the end of the day. And that was the reason for the initial shift. Mm. The purpose uh, has evolved since then. That, that was early um, uh, that I sort of made that decision. But the evolution towards where we are now, which is uh, making farming profitable uh, and making it sustainable is what drives us every day. Yep. I'm curious where you come out on this idea of having to, quote unquote, sacrifice time to make enough money to then go live life on your terms. And it doesn't sound like that's necessarily what you did because you enjoyed it. So maybe again, kind of false assumption here, but you know, how do you think about the idea of, look, yes, I'm going to spend 20 years of my life on this thing, but it's towards a number, which then turned into a purpose, which then turned into your current livelihood, as opposed yeah. to the person who there might be a 21 year old listening who's saying like, I don't want to do that right now. I want to focus on purpose. And I will say it's a lot harder to also focus on income. It's just the way capitalism set up in my opinion. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Capitalism is, uh, it's got its problems. And, you know, part of the reason we started the nonprofit is, uh, is, is some of those problems that, uh, that do exist. But, you know, even when I was younger, there were two sort of categories of people. There was the idea that you could work to live and, and, or you could live to work. And, um, meaning that uh, I'm going to dedicate the next 10 or 20 years of my life to get financially comfortable so I can do the things that I want to do versus I'm going to find a job that allows me to go skiing and surfing and doing the other things while I'm young. And the second route means that you're going to be doing it for much longer, right? That right. it's going to be... 30 or 40 or 50 years of doing the surfing and the work versus dedicating, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, um, put the time in and then spend the last 20 or 30 years, um, really focused on what I want to focus on. Yeah. Now that being said, I, as I say, I enjoyed finance and I was, um, um, blessed to be successful at it. So it, it, it worked out as planned, but uh, even within finance, I was I was uh, um, quite successful. So that made that decision sounds you know that sounds easy now, but um, you know I was blessed to 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 be able to uh, achieve both uh, enjoying what I did and uh, financial success. 
honestly, it's tough because it it sounds like the dream. It's like, yeah, one of and and again, you know, having worked in finance um, as well a while ago, it was different then than what it is now. The way I equate it is like now when people go in to become software engineers, like that's what finance was in my mind, right? It was the, yeah. the place you went yeah. to make a lot of money, period, bar yeah. none, top of the food chain. Yeah. Um, but you liked it. It's like not fair. You liked it. You <laughs> were good at it. And it led you to this. Like, that's just not how it's supposed to work out. And I'm kind of annoyed. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> well, and so one of the things that we're working on now with this nonprofit, and one of the things when I started farming was the idea of like, when I, when I started, you know, now 15 years ago, uh, the average farmer lost money. 15 years later, the average farmer, farmer loses money. There's no other industry in the United States that the average person is a negative income. Um, and so one of the goals in the beginning was how do you do it profitably? And uh, I, I w will say that all the all the ideas that I had to make it a, a profitable um, career turned out to be wrong. But that was the goal to figure out how do you make it profitable so that now as I'm having a conversation with somebody that's in high school or in college and you can present them with the idea of you can become a lawyer or a doctor and make $500,000 a year, or you be, or you could become a farmer and make $500,000 a year, right? The farming has never been part of that conversation because there never was the opportunity to make it a career. Is it part of that conversation now? Like, could you, could you look somebody in the face and say, look, it's going to take a long time, like anything and all of your blah, 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 but you can make six figures profitably farming. Cause if so, like I'm in, that's where I want to go with this. <laughs> Well, so that's uh, we're at the beginning stages of the, of the nonprofit, but that is the idea to take what we've learned and give a turnkey solution. The, the what we're focusing on in the beginning is the uh, farmers that are already uh, in existence, right? Of so course. the idea of keeping the farmers farming as opposed to bringing new farmers into the fold. But to answer the question, that's that's absolutely what we're working towards so that uh, it becomes a career choice, uh, not a life of poverty. And, and, you know, how many more people would become a farmer if it was uh, a career that even comes close to some of the, some of the other ones that are being uh, uh, pushed in school? Exactly. And, and I want to get into that because it is one of those things where, especially today, but I remember... You know, for me, what sparked the biggest interest was Michael Pollan. I read Omnivore's Dilemma, and then uh -huh. I read, well, I read Botany of Desire, then I read Omnivore's Dilemma, then I watched Food, Inc., then I learned about Joel Salatin, then I said, I'm going to be a farmer, and I told my wife yeah. I was going to go intern with Joel Salatin, and she was like, whoa, 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 whoa. But, yeah, yeah. Reality um, check. Yeah, reality check. <laughs> so I want to talk about the fact that people recognize now the importance of food. Uh, even the eggs that I have friends that will go to the store and buy 18 eggs for, you know, $3 are like, Hey, can I get yours? Cause I know these are ultimately better. The problem becomes, it seems like one of those industries where the incentives are so misaligned. It's like the thing yeah. that people are asking for, maybe they're not willing to pay for, even if they are, where do you get it? And those yeah. growing it are still dealing with all of these problems. Why is that such, why is is that 
you know, almost limited to the the product that we need to survive. Yeah. So that, you know, the, the three most important things in life are air, water, and food. Right. Air and water we don't pay for. And food is number five or number six in terms of what we spend our income on. So you're absolutely right. It's it's the, the one of the most important things in our lives, and um, uh, we don't treat it as such. It's uh, it, it's amazing, and you know part of that um, is based upon uh, the marketing that's taken place. I think that the difference between what we think we're buying and what we're actually buying, based upon marketing, is the biggest gap that there ever has been. So grass fed or cage free or uh, free range, like all of them are fairly meaningless terms. Even the ones that are certified like organic, where you have to meet certain criteria. And then there's a, a, a agency that comes in and certifies you. Uh, that's gotten pretty far away from what it was supposed to be. I want to get into that, uh, to, to not do this whole conversation a disservice and to follow my linear thought. There's two more yeah. things I want to wrap up before we really dig into farming. The first yeah, let, is, let me let me ahead. just uh, take one step back because I, the prelude into uh, this last question you were talking about your uh, you know your uh, draw into farming and so I told you about you know my reasons for leaving finance and and how that sort of started to transpire. Mm -hmm. What I didn't mention was that what got us on our current path. Uh, this oh, I was going to ask. Don't you worry. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> uh, well, so uh, it was started with my wife gave me an article back in 2004, right after we purchased the, our, our, the property that became the farm uh, called Power Steer by Michael Pollan. Power ah. Steer, that article really was an excerpt out of Omnivore's Dilemma. Wow. I read Omnivore's Dilemma and got hooked. I, I, you know, there has to be a better way. We have to change the world. We have to change the way we're eating. We have to change the way we're treating our environment. Wow. So it's, I can't tell you how many people that is find that very similar path and then start to talk about the same names that you're talking about. Joel Salton, Polyface Farm, yeah. um, Greg Judy. It's, yep. uh, it's an interesting uh, evolution of, of people getting involved in farming. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Ginger. The North Star for every employer, manager, and HR professional is to create a supportive culture where employees are empowered to reach their full potential. Now more than ever, that objective starts with Ginger, a comprehensive mental health system for employees. Listen, to have a productive workforce, it is absolutely important that your employee's mental health is taken care of. Ginger is reinventing mental health care to provide immediate and on-demand personalized support for your employees. Here's how it works. Ginger brings immediate, high-quality mental health support right from a smartphone. With Ginger, members can connect with behavioral health coaches via text 24-7. Your employees having on-demand access to mental health support via an app is absolutely revolutionary, and the Ginger app makes that possible. Employees can get help with setting and working towards goals around anxiety, sleep, relationships, stress, and more. For more in-depth care, Ginger offers video therapy and psychiatry. Coaches, therapists, and psychiatrists work together to ensure each Ginger member gets seamless care tailored to their lives. Nearly 25 million people around the world have access to the Ginger on-demand mental health system. Sign up your team today. 
To learn more about how Ginger can support your employees' mental health, visit ginger.com slash smart. That's ginger.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. That's incredible. I mean, one, imagine if you're Michael Pollan right now. Like, I mean, you, yeah. when you, if I were to take a lesson away from that, I think in today's world, especially with the glitz and glamour of like social media and, and, you know, we're one in 7 billion now when we used to just be one in a hundred in our tribe is to realize like one person can still have an impact and that impact can be massive and exponential. And it can often be based on a tangential uh, route, right? It's not like Michael Pollan said, I'm just going to start a sustainable farm. He's like, well, I'm going to do what I do best and I'm going to be an author and then I'm going to be an advocate and all these things. And like how many people's lives have changed because of that uh, Two on this call right now. And not just to the extent of like, oh, I'm going to do it. Both led to nonprofit. Like not that they're the end all be all, but it, it's not easy. That's not an easy life choice. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the interesting thing about Omnivore's Dilemma that he, he wasn't, you know, the book didn't really have an opinion. It was just sort of this, this path, which it's amazing how impactful that book is. And he wasn't preaching in any way, right? It wasn't a, you should do this. You should do that. This is good. This is bad. It was, you know, he was a, he was a, you know, he was a gatherer. He went the, the route of, of sustainable and big ag. And it, it was, uh, it's interesting the impact that book has, um, without him really giving a whole lot of his opinion. Just, uh, I'll tell this story because I don't know if I've ever told it on the podcast before people who listen a lot, maybe, but uh, you might find it interesting. So have you, have you seen food Inc? Yeah. I'll never forget my wife and I way before we were married, we we're pretty newly met. We went to see food Inc and, uh, we're in the theater and, you know, of course the book has a heavy kind of through line of omnivores dilemma and Michael Pollan and Jill salad and play a big role in there. And there's a part in the movie where they talk about sugar, specifically soda, and its direct kind of correlation or causation of diabetes and all these issues. And I kid you yep. not, at the moment they're talking about it, in the theater, there's a loud thud. And all of a sudden, there's this, like, gasping. And a gentleman had passed out, a, a large gentleman had passed out, hit the floor. And you could hear it. Turn ambulance came, they stopped the movie, they stopped the film. Turns out he had diabetes. He had whatever happens when you have that where he passed out, and it was caused by a I guess insulin spike, or it was caused by a sugar spike at that moment. And that was essentially the culmination of a year later. I helped start a nonprofit in the in the healthy food space. Is that not unbelievable? That's that's an amazing story. So I don't know. It's just, it's hard to have this interview given how passionate I am and how, how much um, your life not only aligns, but how much you've done with it. We're going to get into that. So last question here, kind of on the, the career transition, what advice would you give to somebody? Maybe they're in their early twenties, maybe thirties, forties, doesn't really matter, but who's struggling between like, do I want to, which route do I want to take based on the two we just discussed? Do I want to kind of work hard early ish. And we're not talking five years, 10, 20, uh, in a high stress, fast paced environment, often such as finance or, you know, tech or whatever, in order to have more time later in life to li live my purpose, or 
go straight towards the purpose, recognizing that that has its battles as well. What advice on how to make that decision, if any? I'm not sure I have advice in that because I don't think like there's I, it's hard to know what sets us all on our career path. Um, and for each person, it's different. But by the time you're 19 or 20 or 21, a lot of that's been set that it's not uh, it, you're either a type of person that is going to go one way or the other. I don't I don't think that you're going to change course. I can say, you know, the things that I think are important to me, setting goals, for instance, like I all throughout my life, I set goals because I always believe if you don't know where you're going, you're not going to be able to get there. Um, but in terms of should you work hard for 15 or 20 years so you can do what you want or, uh, you know, enjoy life while you, um, uh, while you're young. And, and so I used to say, uh, the most successful person I know was, uh, one of my friends from high school that right after college, he moved to Sun Valley, uh, and he was a rafting guide in the summer and he was a ski guide in the, in the winter. And he is still there. But now I've changed my tune on that a little bit yeah. because he certainly loved it. Like he, he enjoyed every day. Whenever I saw him, he loved life. It becomes a little bit harder when, you know, your knees start to go and, and your, your, your back is uh, giving out. Uh, you can no longer be a, a ski guide and a rafting guide. Um, and he doesn't have any retirement. There's no, you know, he's going to have to continue to work for the next 20 years. Um, and so I don't know, I, like I would have said he's the most successful person that I knew 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and now I, I, you know, when we talk, it's, uh, I wouldn't say that he's unhappy, but you know, he recognizes he's, he's in this for the next 20 years. It's a powerful story. And I realize or recognize you're saying, I don't know if I necessarily have advice and I get that right. Sometimes I'm wary of people who are like, I know the exact advice because then it's missing a lot of nuance. But what I'm hearing is I think just as valuable, which is the more important thing is to ask which avenues are most important, understanding the repercussions of both, right? It's recognizing most of the times you can't have it both ways. That's not a bad thing. But do you know yourself well enough to make the best guess at that moment? And if not, how do you figure it out? That's that's right. kind of what I'm hearing from you. That's exact. That's exactly right. And, and you know, I, the real answer would be find something that you love, so that you're doing. You're both making you love that makes you money. Unfortunately, we're, we're stuck in this capitalist world, right? So that money becomes part of this equation. When we talk about success, 99.9% .9 of the people think that success is measured by how much money you make. Yeah. Um, and when you talk about doing the things that you enjoy, nine times out of 10, it costs money to do those things. So the perfect world is you're doing what you love and you're getting paid a fair amount of money to do that. Right. Um, to, to your point, that is really the, the understanding, this gets back to my idea of goals, understanding what you're trying to achieve allows you to then form a path to get there. And yeah. so, um, it allows you then to make the decisions, you know, do I really want to be working 
when I'm 75. And, right. and if the answer to that is no, then, then, you know, you seriously have to consider your path and, um, whether that means sacrifice, uh, at the beginning or sacrifice at the end. And by the way, sacrifice is part of it. Like, you know, whether it's a marriage or a career or, um, uh, you know, our hobbies that there has to be sacrifice. There has to be, um, uh, a balance and, um, there has to be compromise as well. So that you're never going to, it's never going to be perfect. Uh, yeah. you, know, you look at my life and you say, man, I, that's what I'd like to be doing. Yeah. But you know, there, my, there's not all my days are glamorous. And, uh, um, you know, we have 120 employees, which during COVID that became, you know, that became a real struggle, which meant that, uh, like many small business owners that we were working a hundred hours a week because we had wow. to do a little bit of everything. And wow. some of those things I enjoyed and some of those things I didn't enjoy, but ultimately as a whole, it, it turns out well, if there's compromise and sacrifice. It's a powerful statement. I, I think sometimes just the truisms that we say turn into cliches, which then get minimized, but they're, they're true for that reason. I don't know. Maybe I'm just talking to myself, but I always really was like, no, you can have it all. You can push against both. You can, you can. And I think at the expense of reality at times, you know, but I don't know. That is the, the journey of learning. What I also find funny is we asked probably a hundred of our guests this question. Uh, we haven't in a while, but what does success mean to you? And the reason I stopped asking it, cause we're going to put it in a book form is the answers all follow a similar vein and they're not surprising. What is surprising is that every single person knows success is not financial yet. So many people judge their own lives on finances. And I cannot figure out why there is this misalignment of like, I know that's not what successful means, but it's still the goalpost I'm going to chase. Yes. Well, and, and you know, I would add to that, that uh, you started a nonprofit and it's impossible to have a discussion about any business related thing, whether it's a nonprofit or for-profit without capitalism making its way into the first two or three sentences. Like Absolutely. it's not, uh, it's, uh, it is just fascinating to me how it has to be about a return. It has to be about achieve gaining something from it. And it's become a lot more heightened now that there's, uh, more focus on this idea of social good or, uh, social returns or, uh, you know, ESG, whatever, you, you know, whatever of the 10 or 15 new taglines for, uh, uh, social investing, um, that there's really no value put. It really comes back to, well, what's the return I'm going to get? Like, exactly. yeah, that's great. I'm doing good, but show me the money. Right. And so I don't know uh, if we deep, solve it's, that. It's, it's ingrained in all of us. I was going to say, yeah, if we solve that, man, we definitely should be making more money. But, um, so, all right, th that was great. I, I really appreciate that. It's good to see that perspective. And I wanted to talk through it with you. Let's go to now you, you know, you leave wall street one of the things I want to ask, and you know, you don't have to give us specifics on numbers, but it's hard for, I think a lot of people. And I asked this question, somebody else uh, started at wall street, a guest we had, and they, they opened a nonprofit and that's what they do now. Right. It's hard when 
people listening know, okay, you, you probably made a ton of money. You probably set for life after that uh, by, by most standards. So, okay, John, if I want to push back, it's easy for you to go do the thing that's like passionate and fun. And I realize it's not that. Like you're not out just drinking, you know, Mai Tais on a beach. I fully get that. But um, what do you say if it's like, well, is it fair that the only way to really focus on purpose or in this instance, uh, without starving is to have to go make a lot of money on Wall Street first. You know what I mean? Or is it just like, hey, again, this gets back to our our our, our thing about choices. Yeah, it, it, I was just about to say that gets back to choices, right? Okay. So it's not fair or unfair. It's the choice that, uh, you know, that some of us made. Now, um, not everybody has the ability to get into finance and make a lot of money. Like, you know, so it's not even that you have a choice that... Uh, Good point you know, that even within finance, I, I, you know, I was, uh, successful above and beyond most people. Ah. Um, but that being said that, yeah, that's, that's the world that we live in that you, you, you know, you have to make choices and, um, nothing's going to be given to you. Right. And, and so whether it's fair or unfair, it, it, that's the way that it works. I love, I, I actually really, appreciate respect and, and believe in that approach. Like fair or unfair is, is it is. So that's what happened right. and look what you've done with it. And I think that's the other part. So let's get into it. How did farming come about? You know, was it always a passion? Did you seek to change the, the way farming is done or was it just something you wanted to do with your family? Tell us the start there. Yeah. So, um, my parents were not farmers. My wife's parents were not farmers, although my wife's grandfather did a little farming, but he was an artist first and foremost. So, uh, that, that's an interesting choice where, uh, you know, you choose farming to subsidize your artist's income or, or art to subsidize your farming income. But regardless, the, uh, the reality is we didn't have a whole lot of farming in our background. Um, and when we, when I first sort of made the decision and had this pull towards farming, it more was the idea of the fascination of whether it's the smell of the earth or the smell of diesel fuel or something growing from nothing. Like there was really a pull towards the idea of farming. But in the beginning, that was to show our kids where their food came from, uh, to do it on the side. And once I got to the point that I was going to leave Wall Street, that um, farming wasn't going to be the core of what I did. Um, and then after reading Omnivore's Dilemma and uh, then talking to local farmers um, and understanding their struggle um, and then talking to local chefs and understanding their struggle, uh, it was the opposite side of the, of the equation where... Um, Farmers were not good at marketing, marketing and, and uh, distribution, and chefs were uh, uh, needed reliability and um, uh, consistency. And so, I thought, well, if you connect those two, um, that you solve the problem. So you have a farm that supplies a market and a restaurant, and what doesn't get used by the market, the restaurant comes back into the farm as food or fertilizer. Then you start to solve the problems that seem to go along with uh, farming and food um, because you control um, all the things that are problematic for the average farmer and all the things that are problematic for the average restaurant. 
Uh, and so that was a twist on that happened uh, about a year before I left Wall Street. So by the time I left Wall Street, I was on this idea of a closed loop sustainable food system, uh, thanks to Omnivore's Dilemma and Michael Pollan. Um, but based on those conversations about what were the struggles of the farmer and what were the struggles of uh, his customers. Hey everyone, Chris here. And I wanna take a minute for our sponsor this week, Organifi. Now, the one thing you might be asking is, why is Chris doing the read? Because honestly, John almost always does these. When Organifi decided to sponsor the show and I got their product, I tried it and I was genuinely shocked. I actually called John and said, hey, let me do the ad read for this one because it's incredible. And here's why. Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition with high quality ingredients and less than three grams of sugar. So my two favorites are their green juice blend and their gold blend. The green juice blend is best with cold, you know, just mix it with cold water. It has all types of good stuff. It has ashwagandha, which if you're not familiar, it's a adaptogen that can help with stress, weight management, etc. It has moringa, matcha, chlorella, spirulina, it has all this good stuff, but what's even crazier is it's delicious. Like my biggest problem with a lot of these products is they taste like they're healthy. This stuff is awesome. And the gold, oh man, you put it in hot water, like a tea. It has turmeric, ginger, lemon balm, reishi mushroom, turkey tail mushroom. Again, made of health, but like better than all the teas I have on a nightly basis. So treat yourself to amazing health and try it today for 20% off your entire purchase. Go to www.organifi.com slash smart. Again, organifi.com slash smart. Get 20% off. And when you love it, shoot me an email and tell me I was right. Let's get back to the show. Is it more about kind of that closed loop? Is that the problem? Yeah, well, so... um a lot of the things that I thought were going to be the problem have turned out not to be such an issue. And a lot of the things I thought were going to be easy have turned out to be very difficult. So um, you, the one advantage that I've had, well, two advantages. One, I had enough money that I could fail a thousand times. Um, <laughs> and two, I own the entire, entire food chain. So I know where where the problems are. And that's extremely unique, right? So there's a lot of farmers or a lot of consultants that'll say, I know what the farming problem is, but they don't know the other side of the food chain. So in order for us to have uh, a, a restaurant and a market that's supplied by the farm, we also needed to have a bakery. We also needed to have a slaughterhouse. We also need to have a butcher shop. So in terms of our supply chain, everything is born, raised, and slaughtered on the farm. So we're one of two USDA-inspected slaughterhouses on farm. Wow. The other one is White Oaks down in Georgia. Uh, so no animal farmer other than uh, me and Will Harris down in Georgia truly has control over the animals from the beginning to the end. Why um, is that? Is that a cost issue, like first and foremost, through and through? Well, so... This is going to come back to what the real problem is with farming and, um, in, you know, having the food chain and having the ability to fail has gotten us to 
what I have really uh, figured out to be the problem or what I believe to be the problem, but I believe it fairly strongly because it's, it's based on numbers. But, um, and so the answer to your question is because we are stuck in a paradigm uh, that has existed for the last 30 years and people can't think outside of that paradigm box, right? So, and it, it, this gets back to capitalism. It, you know, so if you were in finance, you probably had some business classes. And since the time I can remember any of my business classes, it was about specializing, right? You wanted to focus, focus, focus and capacity utilization. So not only did you want to focus, but you wanted to do it as big as you can. So make one thing, make a lot of it, make it as often as you can. And that is our farming world. That is our financial world. That is just about everything that we do is, um, is based on that concept of, of capacity utilization and centralizing. And so in the case of farming, we have centralized to the point where the average piece of beef has traveled 3,500 miles before it gets to you, right? Because it's about, you know, and 85% of the beef slaughtered in the United States is slaughtered by four companies. Um, and we're seeing that during the pandemic, that becomes a real problem with our food chain. Yep. Um, but it is something that we've learned. It's been pounded into us since the time we're little, centralize, centralize, centralize. And the reality is that this is the time we should decentralize. So I, so just to talk about slaughterhouses as an example, where Smithfield went down, J, uh, JMS went down, uh, and half of the beef in the United States went offline, right? And so it raises the question that if, if I had asked this question before the pandemic, you would have told me it doesn't really matter because there's nothing that's going to disrupt the food chain. But if I ask this question now, it sort of makes sense. Would you rather have one slaughterhouse with 2,000 employees or would you rather have 1,000 slaughterhouses with two employees? And the answer, if you're trying to reduce the risk of having an impact on the food chain is obviously 1,000 slaughterhouses with two employees. Right. That I can tell you the slaughterhouses that had two employees, uh, certainly ours, that we have back up to those two employees, we never went down. Right. Um, um, and so part of the reason centralization has happened because the economics did make sense at one point. Now let's switch over to milk as an example that, um, milk is essentially processed as well. 99.9% .9 of the milk in the United States is, goes through a central processor, uh, as opposed to being on farm. And if you go back 30 years ago, um, and Chris, I don't know how old you are, but 30 <laughs> years ago for me, um, that there was a, a central processor, but there was only one, like Johanna farms was the, was the milk. When I went into the grocery store, there was only Johanna farms. Like it, we didn't yet have the technology that we were getting milk from all over the country or all over the world that it was centrally processed, but it was still localized. Um, and then over the past 30 years, those have gotten consolidated and consolidated and consolidated so that the central processing has become much, much larger and things are traveling much, much further. But the time that that was happening, it made sense because the equipment was very big and bulky. It was very expensive and it was very difficult to operate. So now 
30 years later, what was the size of a car is now the size of a washing machine. What used to be a million dollars is now $100,000. And just like today's cars, uh, it's very easy to operate. So you don't need to know much. And if, it, if something breaks, it's under warranty and somebody comes and fixes it. So processing on farm has become a small footprint, fairly cheap, and um, easy to operate. And so there's 80% of what we eat has to be processed. So you think about what you have for dinner, every piece of meat that you have on your plate had to be under uh, ins federal inspection. Um, every uh, grain that is on your plate, whether it's in the form of bread or whether it's in the form of grits or um, cornmeal or, or however it's showing up on your plate had to be processed not necessarily under inspection, but it had to be processed. And that grain processing is all centralized too. And same with milk. So grains, dairy, and proteins all have to be processed. So 80% of what we eat have to be processed. All of that now goes out to a central processor. And that is, the pie is the same size as it used to be, but Long ago, there were only two slices. There was the farmer and there was the retailer. And the retailer got it directly from the farmer because everything was localized. Mm, okay. Now that pie is sliced into many, many different slices. So you've got the farmer, you've got the transportation to the processor, you have the processor, you have the transportation to the distributor, you have the distributor, maybe another distributor, maybe a third distributor, and eventually it makes it to the retailer. So somewhere in between there marketing comes in too. So if the processor is the marketer or the distributor is the marketer, or there's a third party marketer altogether. Um, and so every time another person enters that chain, the pie gets sliced a little bit thinner and every other part person in that, in that supply chain, uh, loses a little bit of their, uh, of their revenue. So that makes and sense. So the farmers, complain okay. like you're not getting paid enough right but the processors aren't knocking the ball the cover off the ball either like so there's nobody in that chain that is actually doing pretty well it's uh -huh. everybody is, is is stuck in this paradigm now is that because you know and i'm sure we could talk about government subsidies and whatnot and the, the way the system's set up and regulated but is that because the let's call it the government correct me if i'm wrong um their primary goal is to just create more edible products that are safe enough for mass consumption as opposed to, you know, I feel like from what I know of farming, capitalism has been largely removed due to government intervention. So what we call free markets really are not. Now, I don't know if that's true. I, I am not very learned when it comes to the uh economics of farming. Yeah, well, so just to touch upon that point, that the, it's very slanted, this idea of, of uh, that it's not a free market, that uh, there are large farm subsidies. The majority of those subsidies go towards uh, big ag. So if you look at big agriculture and you say, you know, the average farmer loses money, um, that's all of the little guys, right? That's not the big agricultural guys. It's not the big corporations that are in farming. And so if you think about farming in terms of uh, a business, in terms of capitalism, 
the United States is the best in the world. Like you almost can't get better than one guy can take care of a million chickens. Um, and the scale at which that happens is just remarkable, right? So that if you're measuring things by capitalism, one guy taking care of a million chickens is successful. If you don't care about the fact that it's a living, breathing thing with a nervous system, if you don't care about the fact that their manure is so toxic that it can't be used about for um, fertilizer, if you don't care about what it does to the air or it does to our bodies in terms of ingesting what has to be given to a chicken to keep it alive with a million other chickens. This gets back to your point about where are we in in uh, the, the, the life cycle with agriculture not being free markets. Most of the subsidies that are given, which are usually in the magnitude of 30 billion, uh, depending upon the year, somewhere between 25 and, and 50 billion of farm subsidies are, are given out annually. It is nearly impossible as a small farmer to get those subsidies. The majority of those subsidies go to big business who already are making a profit. So it sounds like, oh yeah, the food system couldn't exist without uh, subsidies. The reality is the rich get richer uh, in the agricultural game uh, because of the subsidies. What we were talking about earlier, capitalism and how it runs a lot of the things, but those things also lead to efficiencies. Like where I struggle is you were mentioning the problems with say processing, but as you also mentioned, there is an extreme efficiency that has come from those processes. So how do we disrupt something if it is meeting the most basic needs of feeding people inexpensively? Because it's really hard to convince people to then pay more. I mean, I think we've done so to a degree. Uh, I know 10 years ago, I couldn't get, call it grass-fed at a, as a giant or a Safeway. And now it's amazing if you can't get it. So right. I, I think there have been changes, but ultimately it's like, do you think we will make large scale changes if the economics can't stand up to big ag or industrial ag? Well, so what I, one of the, one of the things that I learned early on is that uh, the problem that I'm really trying to solve and this idea of on-farm processing uh, being one of the solutions and I'll talk about the economics in a second. But the reality is, at the same price and same convenience, then there's no choice, right? If, if there's this concept that grass-fed beef is better for you, but we start to get into the argument of, but is it worth it? Is it worth the premium that I'm paying? That argument goes away, right? So if, if everybody sort of agrees that I'm not sure whether grass-fed is or is not better, but it's not worse. Right. And so at the same price and same convenience, I'll buy grass-fed. Of course. And so that is a big, that is the big hole that we're trying to fill is to say same price, same convenience. We're going to raise animals that are, are uh, better for the environment, better for the people, better for the animals. Um, and that is the holy grail, right? Got and it. so- when you talk about the economics of on-farm processing and why do more people not do it, 
to give you an idea of what those economics look like, our slaughterhouse costs us $125,000 to operate a year. If we didn't have the slaughterhouse, it would cost us about uh, $350,000 a year to have our animals processed. Right, so we save two hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars a year by to have our own on-farm processing. Wow! Interestingly, with sustainable farming or really any of the environmental issues that we're talking about, if you try to solve one problem, quite often you solve many problems. So, the reason to to build the on-farm slaughterhouse in the beginning was not for economics. The reason to build it in the beginning was because we wanted control of what we perceived at the time to be the most important part of the animal's life. Mm-hmm. Um, but now uh, that part is still important, but the economics are substantially better and the stress on the animal is substantially less. Therefore, the quality of the meat is substantially better. Um, and so trying to solve one problem, a.k.a. give the animal a better life and a better death, uh, solve some of the other problems, which was this idea of the economics make a lot more sense. But for us, that's not to say, wow, now we're more profitable by $225,000 a year. That allows us to drop our price so that we can get closer to what, uh, a commodity beef would be. So at this point in your journey, do you think the problem is solved and now it's just we have to scale or is it partially solved and we're going to keep working towards the remaining portions? Uh, the, the, I think it's partially solved because there's still a, the biggest issue has been, and you experience it with your own nonprofit is the capital, right? And so capitalism comes yet again into this equation. Yeah that to build on farm processing requires money. And um, the farming world is not uh, the poster child of, of lenders lining up to, to give people money. That they, sure. The farmer is a bad investment. It's something that uh, even the, the mortgage companies that were set up to, to provide mortgages specifically to farmers now only provide about 30% of their, uh, of their capital to farmers because farmers are high risk. And so uh, capitalism still becomes a big part of the issue, raising money to have this on-farm processing um, put in place still becomes a big hurdle. Um, and so interestingly for me, like the numbers are dramatic. So we're, we're t- talking about, the, so the farmer that we're working with, the p- pilot program uh, with dairy, um, if all turns out as we expect and the numbers we're using are fairly conservative, uh, he goes from losing about $30,000 a year to be, uh, from being a dairy farmer. And by the way, he's like most farmers where, uh, he has a, he has another job to subsidize his, his, uh, dairy oh, habit. Man. But, um, so he loses about $30,000 just on, on the dairy part of what he does. Um, and with the on-farm bottling, uh, it goes to be somewhere depending upon, you know, if he puts more cows on to get back up to the number he initially was and so on, it's somewhere between 200,000 and $400,000 a year profit. So the swing is fairly dramatic. Okay. Two, two follow-up questions there. One, 
why do people do it if they're losing money? It can't be out of pure joy. Now, I've been under the assumption after I think it was Food Inc. that it's kind of a trap you get in where you're just so in debt, you have no options and you keep going and going and going. But in this case, maybe that's not true. In your experience, why would this guy do it, for example? Yeah, no, I think some people are caught in it and therefore they're, they're, they're doing it because that's what they know. Um, and by the way, the problem is worse than it seems because the majority of the farmers inherit their land. So they don't even have a mortgage. They don't, you know, they're not even paying rent that, wow. uh, you know, a big part of most businesses, um, expense isn't something that they have as an expense. However, that being said that, um, you know, I think some people do it because they enjoy farming. And so, um, that they will be a bus driver or they will be a truck driver uh, and then spend two hours in the afternoon or three hours in the after afternoon to come back and work on their farm. Uh, so I, I think that there really is uh, uh, some aspect of joy that comes out of working with your hands, working with the land, seeing at the end of the day what you've made and, and the tangibility that goes along with that. Um, for those that farm animals, I think there's a real spirituality in being near animals. I think you probably find that with your chickens. That, of course. Uh, you, you know, you might just sit and watch them because they're just, it's fascinating, right? It, it, uh, it relieves stress in a way that you can't get from, uh, from a movie or from, you know, a doctor or a drug or anything else. So, and so I, I think there is that aspect of, of joy that goes along with it. I could see that. It's interesting. Because when you're talking like tens of thousands of dollars, I'm like, oh, I get it. Because sure enough, like we started with four chickens, right? And then we were like, okay, six. And then we were 10 and then we were 15. And then we were like, I'd love to have a, I literally have a hundred, no problem, but I can't in the, the run I built was meant max 18, like in the coop. So, but right. the reason I say that is because when you were saying this farmer, I, I wasn't thinking of it as that, but Sure enough, like we were like, hey, we could probably sell a couple of these eggs, not to make money, but just because we have way more than we need and it'll pay right. for their feed. And then we were like, well, if we get goats, which we want, you can rent right. goats, right? To, to clear land or you could do goat yoga. Right. My, like I could see that process when you're in it. And next, and of course, that was not me quitting my job to do that. So I asked the yeah. question without recognizing I'm kind of down that road in the first Yeah, place. you're living it. You're yeah. living it now. And it's a great point. At some point, you know, if it grows and you have some goats and now you're renting out your goats, you're going to say, I, I need to set this up as a business. Right. And it's going to be a losing business. But yeah. and so now you're going to be another statistic. That's right. Um, you know, so for all the reasons you want your goats and your chickens and, and uh, to go beyond what you need as a family, hmm. that's, that's the why. pull that brings people into farming. For those listening who are as I am fascinated by sustainable farming, fascinated by what you've done and, and we'll provide the website and some more information. What would you like people to take away? You know, um, maybe they want to dabble or maybe they don't, they're just interested in it, but like, what's your driving uh, factor that you wish? Cause I know there's a message that you want to get out about it. And what is that? Uh, well, there's two, I'll, I'll start with the, um, you know, the, the reason we sort of got into this, the biggest polluter in the United States, if we're honest about the math, is industrial farming. And to be more specific about that, uh, it's animal farming. 
so the industrial animal farming is the biggest polluter in the United States, bar none. Um, and the pasture-based farming that we do is 180 degree difference. So not only are we not um, um, poisoning the water, we're cleaning the water. Not only are we not being harmful to people's health, we're being helpful to people's health. And not only are we not treating animals like widgets, but we are trying to allow them uh, to help them have a good life as well as mend the environment. Um, and so if it's the biggest polluter in the United States and 95% of the people in the United States eat meat and we do it three times a day, the biggest thing that any of us can do to solve our environmental problems, whether we're talking about greenhouse gases or we're talking about dead zones in the ocean or we're talking about soil being sterile, is to choose animal protein that is raised on pasture. So that is point number one. And the other big message is about this idea of local. Like, so you talk about sustainability and if I had to give one thing that is the most important part about sustainability, it's about local. And once you start to think about local, that becomes about community. And I think that's a big part of what we've lost over the last 30 years, that most of us do not even know our neighbors, that we don't, we work in one place, we live in another, and we socialize in a third, that there, the idea of it takes a village to raise a kid has been lost for a long, long time. Um, and you start to come back to this idea of local, not only is it powerful in terms of what that means for sustainability and how we can start to heal our earth, um, but it becomes very important in terms of our mental health for this idea of community. I love it. I love it. The last thing here is just about your farm. So Double Brook Farm, the nonprofit you have as well. Tell us about that a little bit. So we've been talking about the farm, but like, tell us about your business. Uh, where can we learn more? What's your mission? You know, that type of thing. Yeah, so the, the, the farm is the sole supplier of um, Brick Farm Market uh, and Brick Farm Tavern. We do not have a website, you know, similar to, to Polyface Farm sure. and Joel Salton, who were in uh, Omnivore's Dilemma, but we don't ship um, that uh, really we're raising food for our community and in our community, um, if they support us, is big enough to uh, to. Uh, run what we need to do with the farm. And so our numbers are fairly large uh, and we have very, very, very little wholesale. So um, from that aspect, um, it, it has worked really well and it's, it's great to go into uh, either of those establishments and just see the regular people that are there um, being part of the community. You know, it becomes a gathering space. Um, so Double Brook Farm is, is Brick Farm Market, Brick Farm Tavern. If uh, that um, those are really the face of the business, those two. Uh, yeah. So now talking about the nonprofit that over these years, we've learned a lot because we've had the entire food chain. We've seen the problems that, uh, that, that arise and what have been difficult and what has not been difficult. Uh, and that gives us a very unique perspective. And so that has led us to uh, this idea of starting a nonprofit um, that is focused on 
social good um, at all levels and all businesses, but really with a focus on agriculture. And furthermore, the thing that solves that problem the most, which is on-farm processing. So the idea of the nonprofit is to give a turnkey solution to farmers so that they get the financing, they get the know-how, the permitting, the equipment, how it's used, where they're going to sell their product. Uh, and so sign on the dotted line and we will build these um, processing in a box, for lack of a better term, which allows a farmer to then start to go and think about these ideas of, should I be grass-based? Should I, you know, can I clean, clean up uh, uh, the way that I'm, uh, I'm farming now? And that really is our goal. Our goal is to help farmers become profitable, but the, the backdoor goal of what we're doing is to make them sustainable, to make them start to clean up their practices uh, in order for us to all get to a better spot, which is decentralization of agriculture um, and uh, a focus on localizing. I love that. And the decentralization is so key just because it's not, it's not just better for the environment or better for the animal. Um, it's also safer. You know, I, yeah, the pandemic was such an eye opener. I remember there was a moment where I said, if it all goes to shit, we can survive on eggs. Like there was yeah. a legitimate moment where I had that thought, you know? Yeah. 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 So, well, and, and so, you know, there's even a lot of tentacles to that. Like, so that the, this idea of accountability that the closer you get to the source, whether you're the farmer and you, you know your consumer, you're the consumer and you know your farmer the more accountability there is, right? So if I'm selling something 10,000 miles away to people I've never met that I know nothing about, there's zero accountability. When I'm selling it to my neighbor, they can't get sick, right? So yes. accountability is key, as well as it's my water that I'm raising my animals on. So yep. I'm drinking it. I got to protect my water. I got to make sure that my neighbors aren't getting sick. They Accountability from a localized food system is very, very, very big. That resonates so heavily. You know, the I mentioned the nonprofit that I helped start, and one of the taglines, if you will, that really resonated with me is, if you go eat at your neighbor's house, you don't ask them typically, how did you make this food or what are the ingredients, but you trust that they have aligned incentives, good food, good times, things like that. When you go to a restaurant or a food service operator, their incentives are not, is this healthy, all that. It's, do you like it enough to come back and spend more money? And the things that lead you to that behavior are sugar, salt, fat, which are the things that are primarily going to lead to a lot of the diet-related diseases. So it's similar in that accountability, right? You go to your neighbors, they're not going to set put seven sticks of butter and three cups of sugar in just so you go, that was amazing, because... Right. That would be wrong, you know, in the same right. way, like when we hand deliver eggs to our neighbors, I, it's so funny you say that. Like I, I, every time I explain, okay, listen, like, here's how to take care of the eggs and you don't have to refrigerate them, but the, you got to wash the bloom off and all these things. And people are like, you've told me nine times. I'm like, yeah, but like you just, you, right. you just feel, and it's like six eggs, you know, it's like a dollar right. worth of stuff, but it's just right. different. Yeah. yeah. 
I'm with you on that. What's the name of the nonprofit and is there a way to support it to, you know, to help in any way? Yeah. So the Decency Foundation is the name of the uh, nonprofit and that's the website, www.thedecencyfoundation. Um, and uh, there's a there's a, um, a donation uh, box on there. Um, and um, the, the, the focus at the moment, as I said, is the on-farm processing. Um, social good in general will sort of lead, build into, you know, other businesses. But one of the other things that uh, we've been doing with this is trying to measure the social good that goes along with any of these projects. So we, um, we have something called the new metric where not only are we building these uh, investments, but then trying to measure what the social good is, you know, so how much uh, have we reduced the pollution? How much have we reduced uh, uh, the transportation? How much have we reduced uh, or, you know, how, how much have we been able to provide uh, to the local community? Um, um, but in terms of giving, it's through the website. And then um, when you get onto the website, you'll see some of these other things as well that uh, it, it's about measuring social good as well as uh, these uh, on-farm processing in a box. Fantastic. Well, John, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been enlightening, eye-opening, motivating, all those things that, that I look for and hope for in every conversation. So thank you so much for, for sharing your knowledge and your experiences with us. Oh, it was a pleasure, Chris, and uh, hope to talk to you soon. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with John McConaughey. More about John can be found at doublebrookfarm.com or at thedecencyfoundation.org. And now jumping into a few housekeeping items before we let you go. If you ever want to reach out to the podcast, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you'd like to support the show, one of the best ways you can do so is by heading over to Patreon, patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast, and kicking us a few bucks each month. It really does help Chris and I keep the lights on and helps us continue to grow the show. But if you're looking for a free and easy way to support the show, just tell a friend or a family member about the show, have them subscribe to the podcast. That will help just as much. And if you're interested in hearing more about Smart People Podcast, go over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. And of course, make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up. So we'll see you all next episode.